Well, no one likes to fail, do they? No one uh, wants to fail, but failure hits you especially hard when you believe in what you're doing. Uh, And then it hits you even harder when you've actually poured your heart and soul into it, uh, when you've done everything humanly possible, but you'd fall just short. Uh, I wonder if you were watching with me that kayaker, Jessica Fox, at the Olympics. She'd won bronze two Olympics ago. She'd won silver at the last Olympics. And here she was pouring her heart and soul into winning gold at the Tokyo Olympics. And it was so obvious that she had just worked for this for years. And then in the final, she makes one tiny error, brushes a gate, and that was it. Silver again. And it was just compelling to watch because anyone else would have said, wow, I won an Olympic silver medal. And in fact, the the commentators, one of them was her father, the commentators were trying to, to say that, but everyone could see she was just broken. Now, wonderfully in that story, she came back two days later and won her gold medal uh, in another event. But in that moment, at the first event, she had poured everything in it, but fell just short. And it was devastating. Well, that is something like Elijah in today's passage. We left Elijah, if you remember, at the end of chapter 18, and we thought, surely, surely Elijah has won. Uh, Elijah has taken on the 450 prophets of Baal and smashed them. He'd proven without a doubt that Baal is a worthless block of wood, a worthless idol, and Yahweh alone is the one true and living God. He'd proven without a doubt that to follow any other God than Yahweh is just foolishness and the people were convinced do you remember that last week look back to chapter 18 verse 39 it says when all the people saw it they fell face down and said Yahweh he is God Yahweh he is God in their minds they've worked this out when you see that evidence you, you can't think anything else Yahweh is God even Ahab even evil king Ahab seems to concede defeat. He's not trying to kill Elijah. He's just meekly doing whatever Elijah tells him to do. So it looks like at this point, Elijah has won. Israel and her king are going to turn back to God. They're going to repent. Israel is going to become what Israel was meant to be, a a kingdom under God, listening to God speak through his prophet Elijah. But then we hit chapter 19. Come with me. So our first heading Jezebel fights back or my other heading irrational unbelief see Ahab gets home to Jezebel and he says you wouldn't guess what's happened Baal copped a thrashing you should have seen it the the prophets of Baal could do nothing God did what Elijah said he would do all our prophets are dead see Ahab knows the truth and he's going and sharing it with Jezebel but Jezebel she's having none of it look at verse 2 it says so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods, notice she's still not backing Yahweh at that point, it's may the gods, and she says, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Remember, they're all dead. So she's saying, how's that for a coming back to earth moment for Elijah? She's saying, I don't care what you've done, I'm going to kill you, Elijah, and it's going to happen by tomorrow. Now, before we get to the impact of that threat on Elijah, which is the main focus of our passage, I think there's a real lesson for us here about human beings in general and what I call irrational unbelief. At this point, there could be no further proof needed that Yahweh is the true God and that Baal is a waste of time. Elijah, or for that matter, God, could do nothing more. 
yet Jezebel still refuses to repent. And Ahab, I have this picture of him weakly trying to reason with her, but Jezebel, I did see fire coming down from heaven. He's seen all the evidence. In his head, he knows the truth. And yet he goes along with Jezebel. And this is just a reminder to us that turning to God, turning to Jesus, is not just an intellectual decision. A person can have all the evidence in the world, they can even intellectually know that it's true and yet still not repent and believe. And that's because becoming a Christian is not just an intellectual decision, it's a moral decision and a spiritual decision. It involves turning away from your sinful way of life. For some, it involves turning away from your culture, turning away from your heritage. For some, like Ahab here, he'd have to stand up against his spouse and against his family. And so some people say, I know it's true, but I'm not willing to give things up to follow Jesus. And sadly, in my experience, some people come up with so-called intellectual objections because they want to justify how they want to live their life. They want to justify turning away from God. And sadly, the reality is, I've seen it too many times, people who in their heart know that Jesus is who he claims to be. They know even that he rose from the dead. But the cost of following Jesus is too much in their mind. Either there is a sin that they want to keep Or there's family that they want to placate. Jesus said this, you remember. Jesus said, even if I rise from the dead, they will not believe. And he was right. We need to remember this as we share the gospel with people. It is intellectual. The gospel is about facts that you need to weigh up. You need to believe. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Can you trust the Bible? Did Jesus rise from the dead? We need to present the gospel clearly. We need to answer people's questions. We need to reason with people. All those things... But ultimately, we need to pray that God will work in their hearts to bring them to repentance and faith. Jezebel and Ahab show us that. But back to our story, because obviously this spelled trouble for Elijah. So my second heading is Elijah's struggle or a godly turmoil. Look with me at verse three. It says, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. I actually think that's an unhelpful translation at that point. I won't go into all the details because I hate it when the preacher says in the Greek or in the Hebrew. But here, I think it should just read, Elijah saw this and ran for his life. Your Bible might even have a footnote if you look down the bottom of the page suggesting that. Now, I think that's important because it actually helps us understand what happens next. You see, people read this and they say, look at how Elijah lost his courage. He goes from being the bravest man in the world in chapter 18, and now he loses his trust in God and runs away, as if Elijah is having a crisis of faith, as if he doesn't believe that that, that God is good or that God is powerful anymore. I don't think that's right. You don't have to be a coward to say, I'm getting out of here, uh, when you have a death sentence over your head. In fact, the Apostle Paul sometimes decided to leave cities where they were trying to kill him. It's it's just called being smart. Uh, Elijah is not a a terrified little rabbit sort of running away here. Now, we need to actually see what is going on here if we're going to understand it correctly. See, Elijah gets out of Israel. There's a map coming up on the screen. and, And he gets down to Beersheba, which is down the bottom of Judah. So he's actually well out of harm's way as he's having this whole moment that we're going to look at in the chapter. Uh, And so he really is at an awfully low point here. 
If you look down at verse 4, it says, He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. See, Elijah is in a horrible moment of depression, a pit of depression here. But it's not fear that leads to this depression. It's actually his zeal for God. See, he explains why he wants to die down at verse 10. Look there. It says, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. See, Elijah's problem is it hasn't worked. Elijah's problem is he thinks he's failed. He has done everything. He's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Baal is a fake, Yahweh is the one true God, and yet Israel is not turning back to God. Even though they said Yahweh is the only God, they're not doing anything about it. Even though they know it's true, they will not repent. So Elijah's point is, if that hasn't changed them, nothing will. I'm a failure. I may as well give up. I may as well die. See, Elijah is despairing here, but it's actually a despair that is somewhat admirable. It flows from godliness, not from cowardice. It's what we often call a godly lament, as the women at Snack Women are going to be thinking about later in the year, God willing. If I can share personally, this is nowhere near on the scale of Elijah, but it's a bit like when as a preacher, you get up having slaved over your sermon all week, and you look out as you, start, as you start and half the people haven't come to church that week. Or when you try to preach as clearly as possible, you are saved by faith, not by works so that no one can boast. It's by grace. It's a free gift of God. And then as you stand at the door, someone comes out and says, oh, thanks for that reminder to work harder, pastor. And you think, I didn't say that. How could you possibly have got that from what I said? And you despair, or for all of us when we share the gospel with our family or invite them to the life course, but they're not even interested or, or they think you're an annoying fool when you ask them. Or on a more global scale, when you look out at our society and, and you see it sliding further and further away from God and glorifying sin and calling it good at every turn and you think, what hope is there for this world? I want to encourage you, if those things upset you, that's a sign of godliness. That's a sign of a heart that longs to see God glorified as opposed to when we get upset and annoyed because our selfish desires are not fulfilled or our rights get trampled on. It should depress us that God does not receive the glory he deserves. See, I think we often don't lament those things enough. I sometimes sit on the train, well, at least pre-COVID I do, and I think to myself as I look, look at all these people wandering around like sheep without a shepherd and sometimes it overwhelms me it's right for those things to depress us it's right for those things even to make us weep they made Jesus weep do you remember when he looked out at Jerusalem and he said look at all these people like sheep without a shepherd but we must not stay in lament and that's what makes the next part so wonderful. So third heading tonight, God's solution, the gentle word of the Lord. See, more than Elijah's lament, it's God's response to Elijah that is the wonderful part of this chapter. All through this episode, God is just at work sustaining Elijah, 
and lifting him up twice, he sends an angel to feed him and gently encourages him to eat. But then something happens that, that makes you realise this is a massive moment in the Bible, in, in all of history, if you like. You see, Elijah, as I said before, was safe in Beersheba. You see Beersheba there on the map. It's well down in the kingdom of Judah, miles from the border with Israel. And in Judah, Jehoshaphat, my favourite king, is king by this point, And he's a faithful king. He's one of the better ones. He'll look after Elijah. Jezebel can't reach him here. But God actually leads him away from there. If you follow the little arrow from Beersheba down, we'd have to go through maybe two or three map pages. God leads him away from there for 40 days and 40 nights into the desert to, look at verse 8, to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, of course, is the other name of Mount Sinai. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to see that something special is happening here. Moses wandered for 40, if you remember, when he went to Mount Sinai, where he met with the Lord. You see, something's happening here. This is setting us up to see this is a massive moment. Elijah is getting the experience that only Moses has had before him. And so here is Elijah on the mountain where God appeared to Moses and spoke to Moses face to face, possibly even in the same cave where Elijah hid his face from the Lord. And a voice tells Elijah to go and stand and look at verse 11. Go and stand in the Lord's presence. Only Moses has had this sort of an experience of God before. And what happens next is so intriguing, I just want to read it out. Look from verse 11, follow with me. It says, at that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now, what's going on here? You see, things like earthquakes and winds and, and fire, they are all associated with the appearance of God. You know that from the rest of the Old Testament, I'm sure. They're associated with God's judgment, but also with his revelation when he speaks, when he leads his people, Israel. And you can imagine what it would have been like for Elijah in that cave as the earthquakes happened, as the wind happened, as the fire happens. They try and capture this sometimes in the movies. They try and capture the, the presence of God, but they never quite get it. I think maybe one scene where they sort of do is in Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you remember the movie where when they open up the ark of God and, and the wind and the fire buffet Indiana Jones and he knows he's got to keep his eyes shut because he knows he must not look at the glory of God or he will die. Those movie makers, they had read their Bibles in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Elijah gets this. He stays in the cave. And it's only when the still quiet voice of God speaks that he then wraps his face in a cloth because how could a sinner go out and look upon the presence of God? But the intriguing thing here is, why does it stress that God is not in the earthquake, not in the wind, not in the fire? Why does it stress that? Why does it stress that instead Elijah knew that God was in the quiet voice? Many people think it's showing us that, that most of God's work is quiet rather than spectacular. At points, God does do amazing miracles, whether it be sending fire on the altar to defeat the, the prophets of Baal, or whether it be raising his son from the dead. But more often, it's the quiet work 
of God by his word changing hearts. Now that's certainly true, but more than that, I think it's because God is stressing to Elijah and to us that you meet God not in all the bells and whistles. Don't chase after the bells and whistles. You meet God as you listen to him speak, as you listen to his word. See, Elijah didn't need another miraculous show of God's power and strength. He got that last week. He didn't need that to get back up on the horse, so to speak. He needed God's word to remind him of what he needed to know. And it's exactly the same for us. When we are weak, when we are doubting, when we are struggling, what we need is God's quiet word to us. We need to turn to the scriptures. We need to remind ourselves again of God's love for us in Christ. We need to remind ourselves again that God is working for the good of those who love him. We need to remind ourselves again that God is in control, that he does have a plan to bring all things under Christ and nothing can stop what God is doing in this world. It is God's word that strengthens weak hearts. Which brings us to the last part of our passage, heading four, God's word to Elijah and to us. So what did God say to Elijah in that soft whisper? How does God comfort Elijah? Well, God's words are there in verses 15 to 18. And God reminds Elijah of two fundamental truths. Firstly, he reminds him, that God will bring justice. See, God gives Elijah a new task. He says, you go and find and commission three people. And those three people are the people I'm going to use after you're gone, Elijah, to keep doing my work. But in particular, to do my work of judging Israel. So firstly, Elijah has to find Hazel, a foreign king who's going to use to judge unfaithful Israel. Then he has to find Jehu, the Israelite king, who God is then going to use to judge Ahab and his evil family. And then finally, he has to find Elisha. It gets confusing, a bit like Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Elijah and Elisha. He has to find Elisha, the godly prophet who will take over from him, continue his work, but will also judge Israel. It's wrapped up there in verse 17. It says, then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. It's pretty foreboding stuff what it says there. And why would there be a word of comfort to Elijah, do you think? Well, it's because God is saying to Elijah, just because sin seems to be winning now, just because sin is ruling now, doesn't mean it will always win. You see, just because evil people seem to be getting away with evil now, doesn't mean that they'll get away with it forever. I am the God of justice and I will judge sin. You mightn't get to see it, Elijah. It mightn't even happen in your lifetime, but it will happen. And of course, God makes the same promise to us. It's one of the reasons we as Christians don't seek revenge, don't judge other people, because God will do it. We can look at our world and see evil prevailing. Sin seems to be rewarded. God's name is mocked and nothing happens. And while firstly we pray that people would turn to Christ and find the forgiveness we have found, but then we also trust in the promise that God will judge and he will do it righteously and with justice. Look at Acts chapter 17 verse 31. It says, God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. 
He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Yes, the return of Christ is an ominous promise in some senses, as we fear for people that we love who, who don't yet know Jesus. But it is also a comfort because it says sin will not prevail forever. Evil will be judged. Justice will come. But the other part of God's word to Elijah is this, and that is God is always working to save his people. Look at verse 18, which is the great verse, I think, of this chapter. God says, but I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Yes, Elijah, most people may have rejected me, but I am still at work. I am still saving a faithful remnant. They are the fruit of your work, Elijah. They are why you are doing this. At some points in history, God's people look huge and impressive. And other times God's people look small and insignificant. But God is always at work regardless to save his people. See, God's message here is, Elijah, just keep going. Elijah, you just persevere. You just be faithful. You might get to see the fruit or it might be for Elisha to see that fruit. You leave that with me. But you just keep going. And I think that is the message we need to take from this passage. Trust that God is faithful. However it looks in the moment. Trust that God is working for your eternal good if you know and love the Lord Jesus. In the good times or the bad times, trust him. Keep trusting Jesus no matter what. And as you share the gospel with other people, whether it's in your formal ministry as a kids church leader or a youth leader or a scripture teacher or a gospel team leader or whatever it is you do, or whether it's in your evangelism as you seek to share Jesus with friends and family, whether it's as you invite people to the life course, sometimes you will get to see the fruit and that is wonderful. Sometimes you will get the joy of seeing people come to faith, the joy of seeing people growing in their knowledge and love of Jesus. Praise God if you do. But sometimes it might be for other people in the future to see that fruit. But you, you just keep being faithful. You just keep sharing the good news. You just keep teaching God's word faithfully. God will bring the fruit. It's like Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. His point is, he shared the gospel with them. Apollos came along and taught them the Bible. Lots of other people probably helped out as well, but God gave the growth. And then he says, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God used their efforts to bring about the fruit. I think there is something incredibly profound in the fact that Elijah probably saw less fruit than just about any of the other prophets in his lifetime, yet he is known as the greatest of the prophets. I think there's something in that. He is the one who stands alongside Moses as the two towering figures of the Old Testament because he was faithful and because he persevered trusting in the Lord and that's why the New Testament includes Elijah as a hero of the faith it's why the New Testament says to us let's follow the example of Elijah's faithfulness amen